My name is Andy Sipes. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm delighted to get to introduce you to our speaker this morning. John Cantor has been uh, known at Frisco Bible for a long time and a friend and a supported missionary for, for many, many years. History goes back to before Frisco Bible when he and Wayne met in classes at seminary. And um, John is also ordained um, by our, our elders, one of the first guys that our elders ordained in the young life of the church. And we are excited to have John sharing with us this morning. So please welcome John Cantor. All right. What a crowd. What a crowd. I could use a good crowd. I mean, I was in rough shape last week, but uh, I'm, I'm doing better now. I told a pastor I have a real burden for the Jewish people. He told me he thought the Jews were a real burden, but it's all good. But, uh, I got to tighten up the shtick this hour. You see, I only got 35 minutes to work with. But, uh, I invite you to open your Bibles today to uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And the title of my message is Arrival and Survival. Arrival and Survival. And the main idea I want to develop today, simply this. The king's arrival is the key to our survival. Let me repeat that. The king's arrival is the key to our survival, both physical, spiritual, both now and in the future. Now, why this topic? I want to encourage you. I want you to be hopeful. Why? Because even though we are a temporary resident under a Gentile president, soon we will eternally sing before a Jewish king. You say, what's up with all the rhymes? Well, I'm a frustrated rapper. Vanilla schlep is my handle. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's kind of like I tell the millennials at uh, UTD. That's out of my comfort zone because I'm pre-millennial. But I do tell the uh, millennials over there at UTD, Jesus trumps hate. Of course, they assume I'm referring to Donald Trump, but I'm not. I'm talking about Trump in the sense of being triumphant. So it's all good. You know, I follow you on Facebook. I know it pushes your buttons. But seriously, here's the deal. Middle, left, or right, we are precious in His sight. Amen. Jesus loves all the ideologues of the world. So why this topic? Why do we need a head-clearing, big-picture perspective, a spiritual reboot? Well, to answer that question, all we need to do is look in the mirror of our common humanity. My friends, as image bearers of God, we have intrinsic worth and value. And yet, because of sin, our inherited and shared guilt from choosing to live independently of God, originating with the first human couple, the image of God we possess is defaced but not erased. We're endowed with an intuitive sense of what is right and wrong, yet we lack the consistent desire and ability to respond correctly and behave appropriately. We need and desire unconditional love and acceptance. But transparency and authenticity is risky because of the real possibility of personal rejection. We were designed to do life and community. But let's be honest about it. Our relationships are often plagued with dysfunction, hostility, and alienation. We have a deeply embedded thirst 
that can only be quenched by that which transcends, goes beyond what is temporal, temporal earthly satisfactions, temporal pleasures. And here's the thing. We're all just a heartbeat away from the unimaginable forever of eternity, a never-ending, fully conscious state of being that's either so horrific or so blessed, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, within our experiential frame of reference that even begins to approximate its scope and intensity. We're all part of a fallen race and a fallen place in need of redeeming grace, which is why Adonai laid on him, him being the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. So what I want to do today on this Palm Sunday is talk about Messiah's triumphal entry into our world. Not so much the first one, but the second one. I want to tell my people, the Jewish people, that over 2,000 years ago, our promised, humble, righteous, fully able to dispense salvation king, arrived in Jerusalem, Jerusalem on a baby donkey. And I want to say to my fellow Gentile believers in this king, let's encourage one another. Let's come alongside one another because soon this same king will take his living followers to be with him where he is. Amen? And I want to say to all of those who will be on earth during the future time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, that this same king who is king of kings and lord of lords will again arrive in Jerusalem, but this time not on a baby donkey, but on a white horse to defeat the satanically empowered false messiah and his armies and fully establish the kingdom of God on planet earth. Let me tell you something. It don't get a whole lot better than that. So, if you're keeping score, one down, two to go. Hoshiana, Hoshiana, save now, deliver now. Again, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Psalm 110, and I trust that by going through this passage together, our messianic hope, our messianic expectation will become both wider and deeper. Now, this psalm can be divided into three units of thought, and each of these units of thought describe the messianic son of David. Here's the structure. The first three verses show the messianic son of David to be the divine king. The central verse identifies him as an eternal priest, and the final three verses reveal him as a victorious warrior. So, the overall theme of Psalm 110 is that the Lord has granted universal dominion to the messianic priest king. And this is why we're saying today that the king's arrival is the key to our survival, both physical and spiritual, both now and in the future. Now, this unbreakable lifeline between the king's arrival and our survival is first seen when we consider the divinity of the king. His divinity, which again is found in verses 1 through 3. And here, the first stanza of the psalm emphasizes the royalty of Messiah. 
It describes him in a variety of his kingly roles. So initially, at the beginning of verse 1, David Melech, King David of Israel, states that Messiah is Lord. The text reads, the Lord says to my Lord. By the way, I'm using the ESV translation today. <clears throat> now, in the original language of the text, this is literally a declaration, a proclamation, an oracle of the Lord. It emphasizes that this pronouncement comes from God himself. In other words, this is prophetic, new truth. Here we see that David, Israel's most exalted king, was looking forward to the coming of a future ruler even more exalted than himself. So what we have here is a royal speaker addressing this more than royal person. And this is why we can be confident that this psalm in, in fact, talks about Messiah. Now also, in the next part of verse 1, Messiah is said to be at God's right hand. This is the next part of verse 1. The passage reads, sit at my right hand. In other words, to say this a little differently, the Lord directs the exalted king to sit at a special place of exaltation and honor. And this is bestowal of authority and dominion in God's heavenly throne room. Now take a look, if you would, at the last part of verse 1. Here, Messiah awaits victory. It says, until I make your enemies your footstool. My friends, here's the situation. Here's what's going on. The royal Messiah is seated at the right hand of God, and he's looking ahead to the day when God makes the king's enemies a footstool for his feet in the sense of symbolizing his complete domination over rebels and evildoers. Now, the phrase, your enemies, in Psalm 110 is commonly used throughout the entire book of Psalms. It's a very common expression. And again, the image of the footstool is a picture of victory. So in the same way that a victor, pardon my street language here, kicks butt and takes the names of those whom he has defeated, this divine ruler is waiting for the day when his feet will be over and above his enemies. So far, so good. I'll take that silence as an amen. Let's press on. All right. By the way, if you have your head down, your eyes closed, I'll know you're praying for me. All right. Now, what we have here in verse 1, big picture, is an exalted ruler in a supreme place of honor. In other words, in the throne room of God, he is awaiting victories over the enemies of God, people he will defeat, people that will demonstrate by virtue of their defeat the omnipotent, all-powerful holiness of God. And you know what? There's only one kind of person who can pull that one off, an exalted future messianic figure. This brings us now to verses 2 and 3. And here we learn that even though the king is initially waiting for victory in God's heavenly throne room, 
He will rule, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. It's a done deal. It just hasn't happened yet. In fact, these two verses, verses 2 and 3, describe a descent from heaven to earth where the king receives dominion over his enemies as he leads his servants into battle. What does this mean? It means that Messiah will actually rule over two distinct entities. His enemies in verse 2 and his willing servants in verse 3. David writes, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What do we see here? First, we see that Messiah's rule is described as the Lord extending the king's scepter from Zion. This figure of speech refers to his literal earthly reign from the specific geographical location of Jerusalem. You say, John, is that significant? Absolutely. The king's dominion in Zion and the king's role in the final earthly battle spoken of in verse 5 clearly demonstrates that he will descend from heaven to earth, which also means that the king will descend upon his enemies and rule over them. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the pre-digital, pre-online, prehistoric world, (laughs) we used to have these marathon sessions where we would play board games for hours and hours, you know, board games like Monopoly. And inevitably, my dad would come in the room at some point and he'd say, that's it, that's enough, I'm closing up the box. Well... On an infinitely larger scale, a more serious scale, that's what's happening here. God is saying, that's it. That's enough. I'm closing up the box. Enough already with suffering. Enough with starvation. Enough with terrorism. Enough with death, indignity, hopelessness, sickness, disease. I'm up to here with corruption, dishonesty, perversion, violence human trafficking, infidelity in marriage, disobedience to parents. No longer will I allow for abuse of children, enough with cheating, no more blasphemy, no more irreverence towards me. That's it. I've had it enough. I'm closing up the box. Are you ready for God to close up the box this morning? (laughs) But you know what? That's not the entire story. That ain't the whole deal here. Because in addition to this future king having dominion over his enemies, according to verse 3, the king will also lead his faithful servants in war. Interestingly, plus, also notice, his people are described as voluntary warriors on the day of battle. They do this willingly. Now here, it gets a little fun at least for theology nerds like me. If you link, if you combine, join together, Numbers 24, 17, 
and Psalm 2-7 to the phrase from the womb of the morning, and I take it that that's a legitimate thematic connection, the phrase from the womb of the morning can be understood as another reference to the divine origin of the king. And that, of course, would further validate the divine nature of the king. Now, concerning this coming messianic king, Numbers 24, 17 says, he will be like a star that comes out of Jacob. And Psalm 2, 7 states, you are my son today. I have begotten you. The point here simply being is that when these verses are thematically linked with one another, we have another line of evidence in this passage that points to one as in the one-of-a-kind, only one who comes from heaven to earth. So to tie it all together, to bring it into focus, what we're simply saying is that the first stanza of Psalm 110 presents a divine king seated at the right hand of God awaiting future victory. And on this future day of triumph, he will descend from God's heavenly throne room as one brought forth to establish his dominion from Jerusalem by completely uprooting and overthrowing the present world order. And let me tell you something. It doesn't get much better than that. In the last great battle, the king will establish his rule, destroying his enemies, leading his willing servants into battle and victory. Going back to our main idea, the king's arrival, key to our survival, both physically, spiritually, both now and in the future. And this is seen when we consider the divinity of the king. Well, secondly today, this arrival slash survival is seen when we consider the priesthood of the king, his priesthood. Now, a major break occurs at this juncture in the psalm. The shorter but more surprising description of the king in verse 4 draws attention to this verse as being the focal point of the entire psalm. Look at the promise of God in the first half of verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Here we have a second oracle in the psalm, a second declarative statement from God. The writer focuses on the certainty of God's promise to His chosen king. In other words, since the Lord swore it, he will cause it to happen, and he won't be sorry about it. No regrets, no second thoughts. This assures the reader that Yahweh's guarantee is unbreakable. His statement is guaranteed by a declaration that is irrevocable and sworn by the integrity of his own name. Yahweh's promise to Messiah is absolutely certain to occur because of the strong oath based on the credibility of who he is. Chesed, faithful in his promises, loyal in his love, covenantal love, and loyalty. You know, a few years back, 
I had an opportunity to visit a Jewish history museum in New York. And I remember there were a lot of exhibits, but I don't really recall much of what they were about. What I do remember is that there was this particular plaque at the end of the tour which essentially attributed Jewish survival to the tenacity and determination of the human spirit. The tenacity and determination of the human spirit to overcome persecution and hardship. Now, from a purely secular standpoint, that assertion makes a lot of sense. But here's the deal. That worldview is not living in the land of what is. Amen? Listen to Malachi 3.6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. My friends, likewise, at the outset of verse 4, we see the same immovable plumb line of God's righteous character and integrity undergirding his promises. Now, in the remainder of verse 4, we see that God's strong oath was required. Why? Because of the unusual promise that Messiah would also be a priest. The clause here reads, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If we put on our Hebrew glasses, Melech Sadiq, literally, righteous king. Now, there are actually three unique features of Messiah's priesthood. The first one is that God will unite, join together, the offices of both priest and king and Messiah. Why is that significant? It's significant because in Israel's history, those offices, priest and king, were always separate. They were always distinct from one another. So the point here is that the Lord's oath to the Messianic king promises him a unique office, not merely as royalty, but also as a priest king, someone who would both rule and represent his people before God. That's what a priest does. Now, a second aspect of the king's unique priesthood is that he would not serve as a Levitical priest, but rather, again, as a priest like Melchizedek, righteous king. Melchizedek, described in Genesis 14, served as a priest king of God Most High. You'll recall that from him, Abram received bread and wine for a meal connected to worship. He received a blessing, Abram did, from God Most High. To him, Melchizedek, Abram also offered a tenth of all the spoils that he had taken in his war with four kings. We see this again in Genesis 14. So just as Melchizedek shared the office of priest and king, in the same way, this future messianic figure of Psalm 110 will be a priest and king just like Melchizedek, but not just like because he's also divine. He's divine. A third facet of Messiah's royal priesthood, it's forever. It never comes to an end. 
This shows the eternal work of the priest king. This is in direct contrast to the transient priests whose labors were inherently temporal and limited. So, verse 4, the center of the psalm, emphasizes the priesthood of the coming king. This is significant because the verses before and after verse 4 describe the king at war. So the priesthood of the messianic king is one in which he offers up God's enemies in a great sacrificial feast to the Lord at the end of days. You say, John, where do you get that from? Ezekiel chapter 39. How many of you happen to do your quiet time this morning in the book of Ezekiel? Anybody? Excellent. Outstanding. That's exactly the response I was hoping for. New and fresh material for you. I'm feeling the love. Feeling the love. The key to our survival is the king's arrival, both physically, both spiritually, both now and in the future. And this is seen when we consider the priesthood of the king. Well, thirdly today, this arrival-slash-survival bond is demonstrated by the victory of the king, his victory. Now, this section begins with the defeated nations in verses 5 and 6. David writes, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. What do we got here? Here we have the king at the right hand of God in action, big time. The king is called the Lord. That's a title reserved for God alone. Grammatically, are you all up for some grammar this morning, right? Nothing like a little grammar on a Palm Sunday. I'll take that silence as an amen. All right, all the third person, singular pronouns here in verses 5 through 7, the one who crushes, the one who judges, the one who drinks, and the one who lifts up his head, all of that refers back to the Lord at the beginning of verse 5. Also, just as it is the Lord who is seated at the right hand of God in verse 1, Again, here in verse 5, he's described as the one at the right hand of God. This is why grammar is important for interpretation. So in verses 5 and 6, the victorious divine Messiah is graphically depicted defeating all those who have rebelled against God. He crushes kings and rulers. He judges nations he stacks human corpses. What does that tell us? That's gruesome, right? It tells us no rebels will escape. David says all of this will occur on the day of his wrath. And again, a little grammar, the pronoun his refers to the king. And since the phrase day of wrath occurs only six times in the Bible, and in each case it refers to God's wrath, this would clearly indicate the triumphant king is indeed a divine king. Well, this brings us now to the last part of the psalm. 
which forms an anticlimax to the graphic bloodshed in the preceding lines. Here we're talking about the refreshed king in verse 7. It reads, he will drink from the book. By the way, therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, my friends, notice here, David uses a refreshment metaphor to picture the messianic king drinking from a stream after his last battle. This is polar opposite to verse 1, where he sits and waits for the day when his enemies become a footstool. Now, having vanquished his enemies, the rebels, he lifts up his head, signifying that his work is completely finished. And you know what? That's a very fitting conclusion to the portrait of the divine priest king of Israel, the one who will rule over everything and everyone from Zion. That's what happens when he crushes all rebellion against himself and brings peace, shalom, to the entire planet. Well, in terms of response, in terms of application, where do we go from here? What do we do? First, we tell people that recognizing the person and work of the king is nothing short than embracing the gospel message of the king, resulting in forgiveness and relationship with the king, right? What does that look like? What it looks like is talking about the good news proclamation of the offer of God's power through the person and work of the Lord Messiah to give to those who believe in Him forgiveness and relationship to Him, resulting in everlasting life. It's telling people that before you and I can truly appreciate and appropriate this good news, we first got to get on board with the bad news. Bad news is you and I are sinners. In word, thought, and deed, and by virtue of the fact that we are physical and spiritual descendants of Adam, the first man, we have all come woefully short, incredibly short, of God's standard of absolute moral perfection. We tell people the penalty for sin is death, not just physical death, but also spiritual death. Eternal separation from union and fellowship with God, coupled with conscious physical and emotional suffering in a location the Bible calls the lake of fire. But the good news of the gospel, Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, died for us. He's our divine Passover lamb. And through faith, trust, reliance, dependence upon his finished work for us, we can be saved, delivered, rescued, and even liberated from the penalty power and ultimately even the presence of sin. Uh, Got to catch a breath after that one. <laughs> it's all good. I'm doing this three times today. I'm pacing myself. I got to tell you, I haven't preached three times in a row for 25 years. Is that Mo? Mo, how you doing? All right. Yeah, the, the cap on. Good to see you. All right. That's Mo. All right. Anyway, it's good stuff. All right. So that's what we're talking about, that message, that message. Now, in addition to communicating that message, I think it's also good to share a bit of our story. We all got a story, right? We have a journey. We have a sacred sojourn. 
Let me give you the highlights of the highlights of mine. I call it imagining a not-so-imaginable journey. I was born in Hollywood, California. My ancestry is Russian Jewish. And I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I didn't know any kids growing up whose faith was genuinely an important part of their lives. I came up in California during the 60s and 70s, and typically the deal in those days was parents would make their kids go to church or temple for the first 12 years of their lives, and after that they'd say, it's up to you, and the kids would say, if it's up to me, as we say here in Texas, El Paso ain't happening, all right? Now, I literally stumbled across the Word of God on the sidewalk. One day I was walking home from school. I picked up a miniature booklet. It was a compilation of Bible verses. I read the Bible for the first time. It rocked my world. I was vaguely familiar with the concept of a Messiah. And so I didn't know how to recognize Him. I was biblically illiterate, but I started praying, Lord, if Jesus is the Messiah, I pray You'd make that known to me. Nobody shared the gospel with me. I was treading water in the middle of the ocean by myself. I had no one to guide me to connect the dots. And so I stumbled across a book uh, dealing with Bible prophecy. One day I'm watching some Yahoo preacher talk about Bible prophecy on TV. Didn't understand a lick of what he was talking about, but he gave an invitation to trust Jesus at the end of his broadcast, and I said, you know what, I think this makes sense. I think I need to do it. I did it. And the essence of my story, I went from a place of embarrassment because I was born into this lightning rod of controversy. I didn't know how to navigate. I went from a place of embarrassment to enlightenment, and now I'm in a place of embracement where I'm comfortable in my own skin, and I say to myself, I am that I am made me who I am. I hope you can say that as well. That's a good place to be, right? Absolutely. So that's the highlights of the highlights of my story, a not-so-unimaginable journey. The king's arrival is the key to our survival, both physical and spiritual, both now and in the future. This is seen when we consider the divinity of the king, it's seen when we consider the priesthood of the king, and it's seen when we consider the victory of the king. In conclusion today, I want to briefly touch on the central components of what I do. Number one, communicating the gospel to my Jewish people whenever and wherever I have opportunity to do so. Secondly, preaching and teaching the Bible from a Messianic Jewish frame of reference to the predominantly Gentile church at large, or as I like to say, the white bread mayonnaise ham sandwich crowd. Got nothing but love for the goyim, all right? And thirdly today, apologetic, evangelistic, and mentoring ministry to millennials, particularly those with a Messianic Jewish ministry vision prayer request, going to be doing a Seder at UTD tomorrow night, free speech venue, could be interesting, could be a lot of fun. Appreciate your prayers. All right. Well, God bless you, God bless me, as we seek to serve the Lord in these challenging but ultimately hopeful days. Thank you so much for your time and attention. <laughs>